Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, October 27th, 2020, one week until the election is concluded or the voting is concluded. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi. So last night, Amy Coney Barrett was uh, confirmed by the Senate and sworn in by uh, Clarence Thomas uh, at a White House uh, event. Uh, This all went so much more smoothly than anybody ever thought that it would go, that it is surreal. Uh, Two consequences for each party. One is that the Republican Party has now confirmed three justices of the Supreme Court and has replaced uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg with a conservative, and that's the big thing. In the on the Democratic side of the ledger, several hundred million dollars were raised in the wake of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, out of using the fear of this Republican nomination as a spur to raising money, and that may have played some role next week if, in fact, the Democrats take the Senate because most of that money went to the Senate campaign. Though a lot of it went to Biden, but mostly it was it was used as a, as a, as a spur to senatorial money. And so you could have the, the consequences of this being there is a, there are now three Trump-appointed Supreme Court justices and there will be a Democratic Senate as a result of this nomination. So with one hand you giveth, with one hand you taketh away. Uh, And so all of the screaming last night uh, on the part of Democrats about how norms have been broken and violated, we will not take this lying down and all of that, they don't have to take it lying down because they may benefit from it politically in very, very short order. Uh, Christine, where do you think interpret the last six weeks of Barrettism, <laughs> the whole Barrett experience. Well, she, I mean, she did prove, and I, it, it doesn't shock any of us who kind of knew her uh, reputation beforehand, which is why the, the uh, toddler like tantrums that the left was having about her nomination were so ridiculous. She, she's perfectly qualified her temp- temperamentally. I think she's, she's an excellent addition to the court the the fight about norms as we've discussed on the podcast was was a lot of theater uh motivated by uh, the senate's extremely short and their advocates extremely short uh memories among the democrats about who first did blow up the norms what what struck me last night um was the perfect encapsulation of everything that's wrong with identity politics on the left right now was that image of an african american supreme court justice swearing in a white woman um as the next justice and and there's a tweet that went around that said the only people upset about this are the democratic left which right. is ironic right because they're all about identity representing everything about one's experience and qualifications and so here you have two people who are exemplars of identity politics but because they they're governing philosophy or judicial philosophy doesn't comport with the left there. It, that doesn't count. So I, I actually thought it was a wonderful thing to see. I did see a CNN Chiron, I think was like super spreader event was, was the takeaway that CNN briefly had of the White House right. ceremony, but it was a lovely thing to see. And I'm very glad she's on, on the court. I probably don't, won't agree with all of the, all of her opinions. Um, but I think it really showed the hollowness of the identity politics left in that right. score. And also their, their um, the way they use norms and governance as a political football when it suits them. Right. So the tweet was by uh, Jim Treacher, also uh, whose actual name is Sean Medlock, who was a longtime blogger at the Daily Caller. Uh, his tweet was: "A black Supreme Court justice just swore in a female Supreme Court justice, and the only people who are unhappy about it are Democrats." Uh, a perfect encapsulation perfect, of yeah. the present moment, and you know, it's it's an interesting classic irony. You know, it's the it's the old Klingon proverb from Star Trek Four, Star Trek Six, or whatever it is. Only Nixon can go to China. Um, you know that 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 it should happen that uh, changes are made in American society that are essentially validated and and proven 
when uh, the party that is not really responsible for the changes so inheres the changes that it uh, it, it demonstrates their their uh, eternal validity, right? That Clarence Thomas, who was appointed by a uh, Republican uh, 29 years ago, swears in uh, a pro-life conservative female to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg in 2020. This is a an example of how the kinds of changes in American society are enshrined by their bipartisanship. And the fact that, yeah, that this is somehow seen as a jip or like some kind of a seizure of, of, uh, of tokenist imagery is, is pretty striking, I think. Uh, there was another tweet by a somebody who uh, uh, has they, them pronouns, someone named Dana White, uh, last night. I want to read this tweet. This is the polar opposite tweet of, uh, of, of Jim Treacher's. Uh, Just as Clarence Thomas administering the constitutional oath to newly confirmed Annie Coney Barrett will be a painful reminder of how black cishet men and white women often align in their pursuit to hold equal opportunity and power as white men to oppress. So uh, when you're when you finished spending 24 hours trying to actually decipher this gobbledygook, the whole point here is that all that's happened here is there's a specific person gets nominated and confirmed and a specific event in time and uh, leftist ideology causes the total abstract, turns this into a total abstraction in the language of, of critical studies. And so you can no longer understand. So basically this means that Thomas and Barrett are effectively white men, no matter what they are. Now you can understand it fine, as long as you think in racist and sexist stereotypes. If these people do not behave in ways that we expect them to behave based on the accidents of their birth, their genitalia, their skin color, then they're not behaving in, in ways that are appropriate with, uh, for, their, for their identity. That's you know, the root of identity politics and basically the, the, the central critique that people like us make and that I make is that it forces you to think like a racist and a sexist in the name of enlightenment. Um, and that's what you're witnessing here. In the absence of the incentives to toe the party line, which are pretty overwhelming seven days out from a national election, you would think that Democrats would engage in some sort of critical introspection about how they were so rolled by a Republican party they perceived to be incredibly flat-footed. They rolled them procedurally. They rolled them in the court of public opinion. It was as uh, comprehensive a victory, starting from a position of uh, a disadvantageous position. If you were to check the polling, when this nomination came out, people weren't in favor of confirming this justice before the election. They certainly weren't in favor of confirming this particular justice. And over the course of the month that it took between this nomination and confirmation, they managed to win a whole lot of ground back. Um, it was a, it was a feat, especially considering the bad odor in which the Republican Party is presently in, which makes it a really profound victory on uh, on their parts one that they should enjoy and that Democrats should be looking at themselves critically thinking, you know, wondering at least how they were, how they managed to do this. But what could they have done? I mean, you know, they don't have any procedural tools available to themselves, but what they did do was hold a gun to their heads, threaten their own agenda, threaten their own majority makers, a incredibly impotent uh, fit of peak following which they decided to simply evacuate the room in favor of a series of cardboard cutouts it couldn't have been more uh, underwhelming a performance. Okay, there was one that excited yeah. that generally there was this play acting of excitement among the base as though this was an effective procedure when all they were doing was demonstrating their fealty to the cause. But it was it was counterproductive to not be critical in that moment. Right. But that okay, so that is the those are the Senate Democrats who uh, having eliminated the filibuster in 2013, led by their majority leader, Harry Reid, and then having decided to filibuster a completely perfectly uh, sensible Supreme Court nomination in Neil Gorsuch, then gave Mitch McConnell, made it almost necessary for Mitch McConnell to eliminate the filibuster. They had eliminated the judicial filibuster for 
everything under the Supreme Court, and then by literally by filibustering Neil Gorsuch, who was totally a mainstream conservative nominee, they then had Mitch McConnell pull the trigger and end the filibuster for the Supreme Court nominations, right? So uh, they did this. So they had no tools left. They had no tools left. Had they not filibustered Gorsuch, had they let Gorsuch go through, had they even let Kavanaugh go through, there might have been grounds on which they said, we have been, we have been behaving you know, as though there is comedy and civility in the Senate and you are now, the violation of the Merrick Garland rule would have been much, much more uh, commonly thought as being something that, that, that could be, that, you know, that even McConnell might have been shaking about just motoring and powering that through had they not had the experience of the last two nominees. That's, that's what I think that they they denied themselves the tools by making it so impossible for anybody to go through this process without some form of scarring. Well, I think procedurally that's correct, but I think they have succeeded, unfortunately, in, in getting their narrative about what the American public's takeaway should be from this. And that's that the court's now no longer legitimate, right? The legitimacy message they have been pushing relentlessly and unfortunately kind of successfully, right? That's why we're in a position where you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez last night. Her response was tweeted out saying, you know, it's just a shame that our Democratic senators don't have the stones to pack the court. We need to pack the court. Like it was just right out there. So they, so at the same time, they've, they've uh, eliminated the ability to, to, tamp down their extremist left wing because the legitimacy message that they've been hammering since Merrick Garland has, you know, certainly the, the extremist left has embraced that message, right? They're, they're on that train. But I, I, I worry that a lot of voters have also embraced that message because she was appointed by Trump. You know, the, the, I, I'm worried about the long-term legitimacy of the court because it really is the last branch of government that Americans still tend okay. To trust and respect. <laughs> okay, let me just let me just uh, uh, give you some blowback. First of all, uh, the story of Amy Coney Barrett's nomination is that it was opposed by a majority of Americans, and then she testified, and all this happened. And by the time, according to the last poll that we saw, the morning console poll, a majority of Americans supported her confirmation. Right. So, in fact, the process led to her. If you can say it matters what the public thinks or doesn't think about these things. In the end, a majority of Americans supported her confirmation. The legitimacy of the court issue is has been used as a weapon against conservatives mm-hmm. for decades and is very possibly the reason that John Roberts ruled so disgracefully in the Obamacare case in 2012 with that unbelievably factitious decision that said that Obamacare was a tax on one page and that it wasn't a tax, it was not a tax on another page because there was a full court press put on him by the Obama administration, by the Solicitor General, by Obama himself, by all sorts of people saying, if you rule this way, the court's legitimacy will now have been, it'll will prove the court is now just simply a conservative tool. And so he then, as an institutionalist trying to protect the independence and integrity of the court, did something that was arguably more destructive of the integrity of the court, that is being arguing something that it was plainly and deceitfully wrong in order to have a result that he wanted to have, that decision is worse for the court, just as the legitimacy of the court has been called into question for almost 50 years by the horrendous nature of the Roe v. Wade decision, in which the outcome is something that a majority of people might want but that the decision itself is a constitutional horror of almost unspeakable proportions. So using the legitimacy argument, fine. So let them decide that the court is illegitimate. You know, so what 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 are the consequences there too? Then they can destroy the court. Fine. So they will pack the court 
next time and then Republicans will take over and they will pack the court and the court will, you know, there'll be 38, 39 justices on the Supreme Court by the end of the day. No such thing. I'm just saying, let's, let's, (laughs) they've been arguing, look, Gallup had a poll in September right before Amy Coney Barrett's nomination and showed that a strong plurality and maybe a third opposed viewed the court as ideologically balanced, even though it wasn't. Voters do not care as much about the Supreme Court as rabid incensed partisans do they work right. themselves up into a white hot lather over this sort of thing and it doesn't resonate with voters they're not paying attention to this stuff like they are they they're not in a froth like they are i'm trying to think of an analog and like maybe oh obama there's a, era let's take last night maybe obama era debt ceiling hikes yeah like the Wait. kind of thing that really gets everybody in a froth but doesn't register outside of the closed circle so last night the supreme court ruled that wisconsin could not keep uh, counting ballots that were received after election day. Having ruled last week that Pennsylvania could. And why? It, it, it's actually a very plain reason why, which is that one implicated federal law, that is, uh, Wisconsin was attempting to use federal law to enforce local election rules. And and Pennsylvania did not. Pennsylvania was dealing solely with local state law. And the Constitution says what? States govern the time, manner, and place of elections. The federal government does not participate in elections at all. In fact, when the Voting Rights Act came in and gave the federal government a role in, you know, uh, this question of whether or not these districts in the South were being unfairly, you know, uh, drawn in order to limit minority participation. That was the first time in American history the federal government played any sort of role in elections whatsoever. And so this is a totally understandable distinction, right? Unless you're committed to not understanding it. Right. So then everyone's like, ah, oh, you see, they're, they're now they're going to now. Uh, and Chris Hayes of MSNBC said, this just proves that the Supreme Court is going to is going to hand the election to Trump. Oh, I have an Afterward. example for you. Here is yeah. a Philip Bump in the Washington Post asserting that Brett Kavanaugh's decision, he, he wrote the decision, um, uh, the language that he uses, quote, mirrors Trump's rhetoric, which also triggered a cautionary note. Um, <laughs> just so you know, you know, just in case you're triggered by a Supreme Court decision, um, which Kate, which Elena Kagan pointed out in her dissent. But, you know, the, the implication there is rather clear that this isn't a a legitimate uh, decision based in law and precedent that it's just a really underhanded effort to help Trump get over the post and in, in, in Wisconsin. So and that's why they didn't they fu- they so why, that. Right. So why didn't they find the same way in Pennsylvania, which is arguably a much more important state in this election? They didn't because Pennsylvania's dispute is a localized dispute within the borders of Pennsylvania, thus adhering to the constitution's, declaration that elections that states fix the time manner and place of elections and wisconsin's did not so it's a completely consistent set of decisions but because one goes one way and the other goes the other way the idea is that ah they're being political in wisconsin don't don't listen to pennsylvania forget pennsylvania because i don't know some magical spell was cast last week that made them rule correctly in pennsylvania in a way that might help Democrats, but not in Wisconsin in a way that might help Republicans. Whereas if you have a split decision like that, it makes total sense under those conditions, <laughs> under those conditions that there would be different findings. That's a proof of intellectual independence and, and a freedom from this sort of thing, even though, you know, by the way, three ju- Democratic justices, uh, uh, you know, objected uh, to the uh, finding in pencil in, in, in Wisconsin and three, essentially three Republican justices objected to the finding in, in Pennsylvania. So maybe they were both being partisan, but not the, but the balance of the court did not go that way. So this is insanity. It, but is the, they, insanity- they are the ones who are, they are the ones, these people, Philip Bump and these guys, they are the ones who are saying it's all political and the court is acting actually in its decision making unpolitically by definition. Is the insanity ignorance or bad faith? Well, in some cases it's bad faith. In some cases it's ignorance. In some cases it's hysteria. It's just total hysteria because the general belief on the left's part 
is that anything that impedes with it impedes the counting of a vote as though by the way there is no it, it it is not comprehensible to people why it might be that you shouldn't be able to have a vote counted after election day now we do count votes after election day for many months Absentee ballots are almost always counted. Provisional ballots are counted after and all that. We don't get a final tally of the final result of the election really until like four months after the election as every state finalizes its numbers, right? But um, the whole idea is, gee, you know, there's a count on election day and it goes X way and suddenly, my God, mystically, there are 25,000 mail-in ballots that just happen to be postmarked at 11.59 p.m., <laughs> on election day and 97% of them go one way and not the other. I mean, can you see that happening? Of course you can see it happening. Well, it's, it is actually hard. You're declaring to- what isn't voter fraud, by the way, that's another way of looking at it. It's almost well, like you're yeah. saying we are doing something that will allow for legalized mo- voter fraud. Well, it's completely also avoiding human nature, as you suggest. I mean, if you create a an opportunity for someone to fill with a bunch of, you know, suddenly found ballots that only go in one direction, um, as many people suspect uh, John F. Kennedy got himself elected doing, um, you know, that someone's going to fill that vacuum. That's how human nature works. And it's actually I, I was I was heartened to see the Supreme Court decide have those two decisions side by side. But I agree that. I do think a lot of it's bad faith on the part of pundits and politicians, but my concern is like the, uh, the the civics lesson that this country really needs in general to have about the roles of the brand, different branches of government, because we've seen over this, particularly over the last year, time and time again, the narrative that even in the in the mainstream media where journalists are acting in bad faith and should know better are promoting a narrative that does stick with the public because the public's actually a little confused about that. I bet there are a lot of people who don't realize that the federal government doesn't have a role in, in elections. I mean, oh, that's most that comes, people that yeah. I know. I have been telling people that I know highly educated people with advanced degrees in New York state that Donald Trump cannot steal New York state because the federal, he has no levers of power in New York State. There's the Republican Party does not control any legislative or technical body in the state. And that he is president doesn't mean that he can reach through his federal tentacles and, and control New York State. And they were like, really? I didn't know that. And these are like, you know, I'm telling you, like, they don't know. I don't really blame them not for knowing. I mean, you know, I don't blame them. It's that the this combination of hysteria bad faith and and efforts to sort of gin up uh emotional negative emotional enthusiasm for biden uh or you know against trump is very successful it's successful in a within a certain population uh but yeah it's very it's very successful that's why it's so amazing that amy coney barrett should have ended up with the majority of Americans, according to Morning Consult, supporting her confirmation. Would we ever have get, we would have assumed this would just follow practical political numbers. 30 years ago, it would have been fine. But 60% of Americans wanted Clarence Thomas confirmed. But that does make sense to me that she sort of won people over because once you actually see the villain that that is often created from, you know, the media narrative about that person, the the reality is so uh, different that people do start to question. And I guess my concern is that that's why uh, in the in the lead, lead up to this election, when you have, you know, publications like The New Yorker seriously discussing how Trump, Donald Trump is going to stage a military coup, I find that dan- a dangerous way to be uh, doing the job that they claim to be doing, because those of us who are like, what are you talking about? You are insane. He couldn't do that even if he wanted to, because we have all of these, you know, uh, systems in place that would not allow for it, uh, breaks on that kind of power grab. People actually say, I've had someone tell me I'm irresponsible for not thinking through the scenario where Donald Trump is going to call in tanks to D.C. and block anyone from removing him from office. They really believe it. And that's what I I think similar kind of catastrophic thinking about the court's role is is taking hold here, too. And it's encouraged by people like AOC who are like, you know, let's pack the court. This is clear. That's the only thing. That's the only available resource left to us. We have to pack the court because it's it's otherwise it's a total takeover by the right. Um, well, as Noah says, I mean, the interesting question is politically assume Biden wins, assume they control the Senate, assume they still, you know, they have a significant majority in the house. 
and assume that the polling says that 60% of Americans oppose court packing, or maybe even more, the more it's discussed, maybe the, okay, that's where you get this interesting political question. Do you do it even though it's unpopular? Do you do it because it's worth doing in order to get it done, even though it might mean that you lose the Senate in 2022? Like, do you do these things with foreknowledge that the doing of them has this terrible political consequence? So the only reason why you do it is because it's a means to an end, right? You do it in order to preserve future legislative, you know, the, the integrity of future progressive incremental legislative reforms. Um, in doing this precludes the pursuit of a lot of those incremental reforms, right? So let's gain this out. You take the Senate. Let's say they have 53 members as a majority. That's probably on the high end. But let's say among them are people like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, um, uh, probably uh, Gideon in Maine, a variety of other folks on the fence who are going to be the majority makers, who are from purple districts, purple states. They're probably going to object, or at least they're going to be reluctant about such a plan. Um, so in order to do this, you have to blow up the Senate, right? You have to get rid of the legislative filibuster. That alone sucks up all the oxygen of maybe a month, maybe a month, in, in, and alienates these members in the process. You sacrifice a lot of these progressive reforms that you want. You sacrifice COVID aid, which is priority number one for in the, in the new uh, Congress. And so after all this controversy, after all this rancor sucks up all the oxygen in the country for weeks, then you finally pursue court packing, which, like 1937, no one campaigned on and no one promised to pursue and will uh, result in quite a bit of a backlash from the public. And then once you get all that done, maybe it takes you half a year, maybe it takes you nine months. Most of the first year of this Congress is over. And what political no, capital and then and then you have to appoint anything. right and then you have to appoint three justices and then you appoint three right which, and which each of those justices that's right so, <laughs> so the question this, right. is, this was never a realistic threat this was my argument against it's people not like David an French and John Goldberg who said you know we need we need some sort of a, we need a covenant here and to get back to a rules based system and I kind of agree insofar as what we have now is an anarchic condition in which power is the sole arbiter of disputes now. Republicans can marshal more forces in their favor than Democrats can based on the current, based on the Constitution. But the, the vicissi- a, a, a hedge against the vicissitudes of fate, eventually Republicans will not be favored in that power balance. A rules-based system would be that hedge. And getting back to something along those lines is not inconceivable and perhaps even desirable, but it's certainly not going to happen in the next two years. Abe. I, I, let me just say that, but I'll... I agree with everything Noah said, but even on a more simple level of the reason it will never happen is because in the event that um, Biden is elected and Trump is out of the picture, the heat around this issue will dissipate immediately. They're not going to, there's not going to be a continuation of the anti-Trump fights after Trump in that way. Right. No, it needs a Supreme Court ruling that enrages the left. Mm. The trigger has to be a ruling, let's say, although I believe everybody thinks this is not going to happen, that the Obama, the challenge to Obamacare uh, is, you know, basically, you know, that the conservative justices invalidate whatever, whatever the hell is going on with this Obamacare thing, that they do that. Um, though apparently everybody thinks it's a bad case and that, Trump was stupid to go join it and it, they're not going to they're not going to rule in its favor or something else there's some major decision that and that those come out basically in June and major decisions go away that they cannot abide and then comes it's time to pack the court like in in the absence of of a of a triggering event uh it won't happen but the question is, what happens when the court does something that they don't like? Okay, but you need to message around that for a long time, even in order to get your partisans on board. And they're not on board. Every poll we have suggests that a third of Democrats right. aren't on board with this. How thing. long you need do you to, think you, it would just take? To, just to trigger negative right. partisanship, you right. need to talk about this yeah. incessantly and for but, a long time. But as I, I don't agree with you because I think that I think that something like this 
gets, I mean, I don't really know what that decision would be uh, because it would really have to be grand. You know, it would have to be, you know, overturning Roe v. Wade or it would have to be some gun decision that says that everybody needs, you know, we need to pass the, the Swiss rule where everyone, the household has to have a gun. I mean, I, you know, I, again, I don't know what's on the docket for this year. I'm not paying that much attention. Uh, whether or not there was like a landmark case that could really be decided, but it would have to be something like that for it to then instantly cause, you know, a trillion dollars worth of press coverage that really could, you know, like shift uh, things around. But uh, just to get back to the uh, norm breaking stuff. So uh, in the 20th century, uh, the idea was you point a decent uh, legal brain, a legal scholar, you don't appoint a hack and the person is, you know, worthy and isn't a crook. Uh, they, they get confirmed. Uh, you don't, you know, uh, Nixon lost Clement Hainsworth because he was bad. And then, you know, somebody said somebody was a mediocre thinker and uh, famous, one of the great sentences of all time. I think it was Clement Hainsworth who was, uh, who was ruled mediocre. And then, a senator from Nebraska named Roman Haruska said mediocre people should be represented on the Supreme Court because he would be there representing mediocrity and, you know, what shouldn't they have a representative on the Supreme Court? Right. So that was sort of over with. And so basically, you know, if you appointed somebody who was acceptable, they were acceptable. And then in 1987, Ronald Reagan appointed the most distinguished conservative legal theorist in the country, Robert Bork, and the entire world went crazy. And literally the most distinguished conservative legal thinker in the United States, bar none, it would be as though, you know, I don't know, you appointed a Nobel Prize winning writer to run the National Endowment for the Arts or the Humanities. And they, and they destroyed him. They took him down. They destroyed him. Uh, and, um, that just changed everything except the right didn't do it to the left. The right did not do it to the left. Then, you know, like Bork was just, they tried to destroy Clarence Thomas. Then Ruth Bader Ginsburg is appointed and, uh, Stephen Breyer is appointed and I can't remember. Anyway, they're, they sail right through. No, no, you know, nothing. Uh, then comes, you know, Alito and, uh, Roberts and there's an effort to filibuster Alito on the, on the democratic part. And that, you know, so it's like, it's all madness. Like Republicans did not go scorched earth, all scorched earth tactics in relation to the Supreme Court and Supreme Court nominations for 30 years were, were, were Democrats. And then comes 2017, Neil Gorsuch is appointed uh, to take the seat, fine. So they their their reason that they said they were filibustering was because of this incredible injustice done to Merrick Garland. But Gorsuch, again, like was an uncontroversial. If you have a Republican president who's going to nominate somebody on the right, Gorsuch was as inoffensive a person as you could nominate under those conditions. And they still tried to filibuster him and destroy him. So this notion that the Republicans have uniquely played games with this is so is such patent bullshit that it's hard even to grasp how bullshitty it is. But that's why the narrative that has been constructed, particularly around the Amy Coney Barrett uh, nomination, day one of that narrative is always Merrick Garland, right? There's a, that's a deliberate choice that I think particularly the media has used to uh, prevent people from actually knowing that broader history and seeing that perspective. So it makes sense that, and I think in that context, that's why the court packing argument, uh, however it ends up playing out, could fall on more uh, enthusiastic ears and why I keep bringing up AOC's tweet last night. But I mean, maybe this is just her effort to begin her primary challenge of Chuck Schumer. But I do think that it, it, as time wears on and more and more people fail to even know that history because no one's telling it to them, I do think the more radical ideas start to seem more mainstream if that is the narrative they know. Yeah, I think you never fail 
going with the shallowest history possible. <laughs> That's absolutely <laughs> true. Let's talk about media bias. Um, because, uh, you know, it's one thing that unites all of us on the right, you know, uh, Trump partisans, reluctant Trumpers, uh, anti-Trumpers who are still on the right and aren't making $40 million in donations from radical leftists to start a media company so that they can keep their houses in Santa Fe. They can put up, you know, 10,000 solar panels at their houses in Santa Fe. Um, one thing we all have in common is a loathing and detestation of media bias. So, uh, we are seeing some examples of it over the last two weeks. The most obvious being, of course, the blackout on the Hunter Biden uh, story, uh, which I, I don't think, I think the blackout is preposterous because I don't think that it would be a determinative story. But clearly people, liberals think it would be a determinative story and that's why they are uh, trying to black it out. But yesterday we had the most astounding example of how social media bullying then led uh, major media instruments to backtrack on 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 reporting on something that was blatantly obvious that Joe Biden had, as we say in theater, gone up on, which is the name of his rival, right? So um, Biden's being interviewed uh, on this uh, by uh, George Lopez. And he uses the name George. He was saying, you know, we another four years for George, George, because he obviously was going to say George Bush, and then something stopped him, and he didn't say Bush. No, Jill Biden sitting next to right. him muttering Trump's name is what stopped right. him. Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay. So, um, so this footage is like Biden having a senior moment. Now he's seventy-seven years old, so we can have a senior moment. Like I have them. So, and I'm 59, so, you know, I'm not I'm no one to say having a senior moment means that you should, like, not get the job you want or whatever. But um, suddenly, Dave Weigel of the Washington Post says, this is ridiculous. It's that he was on the George Lope. He was talking to George Lopez. So he said George because he was talking to George Lopez. And then Jake Tapper says... More lies, more oh, oh, because the uh, the RNC and the Trump campaign had had like cut this clip and sent it out to say, "Look, Biden's senile." Basically, so then Jake Tapper says more lies, lies, and more lies, and then uh, to Today Show, which apparently had run this yesterday, apologizes and says it should have used the context that he was talking about George Lopez leading anybody who was actually watching this to say what. You, this, we were talking about Trump gaslighting America. Like, this is gaslighting. So, was he saying we don't need four more years of George Lopez? Is that better than saying we don't need four more years of George W. Bush? I'm unaware that George Lopez, while a distinctly unfunny comedian and a terrible sitcom actor, was also president of the United States. Well, and again, like with the Hunter Biden story, if the, if it had just not been made a big deal of and they'd let the RNC uh, attack ad, they've been doing these ads this this whole cycle and they don't seem to be making much of an impact on voters. You know, if they just let it go, like it, it's the rush to defend something that A, doesn't need defending, just needs ignoring and B, or to suppress the information and gaslight people into thinking it's something bigger. I mean, I never would have come across this if it hadn't become about Dave Weigel telling the world that he hadn't had a moment. And Biden himself then is robbed of an opportunity to use that to his advantage and say, you know what, I've really been working hard. We're really thinking about the country here. Um, I've been up uh, all night or I've been to all these places, which actually in his case isn't true. But still, he could have used it as an advantage and said, yeah, you know, I had a moment. I have a lot on my mind. I'm working for the American people. And it would have been gone. Okay, They're I got to go on. I got to go on here because the fact checker of the Washington Post, the famous inventor of the Pinocchio system, you may remember, gave the RNC uh, and um, uh, Steve Guest uh, of the uh, sort of the rapid response Trump team four Pinocchios on this. For and here is the uh, here is the reason. Um, hold on a second. Starting the clip when the moderators were no longer on the screen, guest, meaning the rapid response, 
eliminated key contexts by removing the most obvious George that Biden could be referring to, George Lopez, for Pinocchios, could be referring to. For Pinocchios is the highest rating of lying. That means you're out and out lying. In the language of the Washington Post fact check, there is a conditionality in the text of the fact check. Ergo, the fact check should get six Pinocchios for lying about how it's saying that uh, Steve Guest and the Trump campaign were lying. That's the same they thing. They weren't lying. That's the same phenomenon that 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 prevailed when on the fact check about fact check about who built the cages. Right after the debate, the yeah. CBS fact check. We talked about that. Yeah, that's that right. drove me nuts. And then when I noted that it was self contradictory, the universe came down around my shoulders for incrementally disadvantaging this candidate by an infinitesimal, unmeasurable femto vote. Okay. Like, because you, you and your tweets, everything, they all perceive themselves to be the masters of their own universe, creating their own reality. And anything that doesn't adhere to or advance the project is, is, uh, is part of, is but, tacitly advantages Republicans. And this, by the way, is exactly how covering the Biden camp, Biden presidency will go and why I am so confident that Joe Biden, even though he elicits no uh, no real strong emotions from either his supporters or opponents, will nevertheless have a strong phalanx around him because the power is all that matters. I am so sure you're wrong that I would bet you – there's no way of proving it so that you would give me well, Pinocchios. But I am so sure you're wrong that the minute that Biden wins, if Biden wins, um, the earth is going to start caving in on him because – this is not actually, you're saying that they follow power. This is not actually how people want to be. It is discomforting to defend the indefensible. Unless, uh, you know, unless you are corrupt, it is very hard to defend the, unless you are at root corrupt. The corrupt don't think they're corrupt. They're surrounded by corrupt people. No. Everybody reinforces their corruption. Let me put it this way. When your goal is to own the libs or own the cons, then you're not corrupt because you, what you're doing is enjoying how they go crazy when something happens that you, that, you know, that they don't like. And so you're, you defend yourself by saying that you're not being corrupt. But what I'm saying is like, Biden, there is no enthusiasm and uh, Biden is backstopped by Kamala and, you know, if he starts acting senile, uh, they, you know, they, 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 they've got a 25th Amendment person right behind them that they probably like more than him. I'm not saying I'm, – I'm not going with a conspiracy theory. I'm just saying um, because he has no reservoir of goodwill, the only goodwill that there will be a reservoir with him over is that he will have been the person who defeated Trump. And that will last two or three months and then it will end. And then it will end, and then there will be a kind of uh, poll herding effect. You know about herding? So herding is when at the end of an election, or this is the classic argument, that uh, poll numbers tend to converge because the pollsters who are finding results that are out of the out of the out of uh, sort of the mainstream will start adjusting their models so that they start looking like everybody else because they don't want to be outliers. Because if they're way outliers, their business basically will collapse afterwards. And so uh, having ignored Biden's incapacities or potential incapacities ever since he became the nominee, uh, they will want to correct for the mistakes that they made. They they don't know that they, they won't say that's what they're doing and they won't know that's what they're doing, but that is actually what they are going to do. It happened with Clinton in 93. I mean, let me just remind you. So basically, uh, Bush didn't have a good day for nine, ten months. And Clinton, you know, who had been thought of as a robotic, bad candidate, suddenly became the glamorous man from hope, uh, you know, Elvis, da-da-da-da-da-da. And then the Clinton people came into the White House, and the first six months were a disaster area, and the press lapped up every instance of uh of of chaos in the in the Clinton White House until 1994 when the Republicans surprisingly took over the house and then it was all hands on deck all hands on deck because then they had gone too far they had gone too far they helped Newt Gingrich take over 
And then they had to swing back the other way and let it be perfectly okay for Bill Clinton to blame Rush Limbaugh for the Oklahoma City bombing and all of that. So I'm just saying, like, I think there may be, I mean, this. how do we know? But uh, there may be, like, a I big... Will, I will disagree with you on, on one thing, because I think what's changed between the 90s press corps, which I think was your description was, was accurate, is the new younger generation of, of journalists who see themselves as moral crusaders. And they will, it might actually, if if Biden blocks their more extreme uh, hopes, you're right, they will attack him. But they actually see themselves in a weird way as above politics. They really do see themselves as a moral voice of the country. They're going to save the soul of the country. And I, I think that that in, in a weird way is more dangerous than a partisan, a sort of blatantly partisan press that just, you know, kind of follows the, the polls because and, and they will bend right, the truth. Right. Yeah. But where Noah, where you too, is that there will be this enforcement police there will be social media enforcement police taylor lawrence will go around wagging her finger at people who are giving any kind of aid and sucker to the enemy which i guess is i think one of the reasons why noah makes the so now i'm switching gears and yeah I, I giving just, no okay it's an entirely different media environment not just temperamentally but the uh, incentive structures I mean, the, just the landscape alone isn't completely different from the 90s. You're talking about when newspapers were dominant in the early 90s. I mean, it's just not that world anymore. And that Clinton experience that you described doesn't even remotely experience, re- resemble the experience of Barack Obama's first two years in office. As we said on an earlier podcast, and as I said, I've been going back over old media, where I saw the, the bottom begin to drop out was in early 2010, mid-2010, when the left began to sour on Obama's presidency because it hadn't delivered as promised in those first two years with big, gigantic reforms. The healthcare was stalled. The stimulus didn't seem to be working. It certainly wasn't satisfactory to progressive reformers. And financial, uh, with the banking reform bill, um, was technocratic and certainly didn't reorient society in the way that the Elizabeth Warrens of the world wanted to. And when the Horizons oil, deep water oil spill occurred, then this this vomiting of criticism of, of the Obama administration became okay on all sorts of issues that were unrelated to this disaster response. It was it was the permission structure drink they needed in order to criticize the administration in the way they wanted to for quite some time. But the press didn't lead that effort. They followed it. Fair enough. Um, so... Here we are, week before the election. Uh, there uh, is no evident movement toward Trump uh, in the polls. Uh, we now have polling that's coming out after the after the final debate, and it doesn't seem to have helped uh, Trump or hurt Biden. And so, once again, what we are looking at here is the hope for Trump voters is that there is a systemic. There are systemic polling errors across the board larger than any that we have ever seen. Uh, Because it has to happen. It has to happen in, it doesn't have to happen in Florida where the, where, where the election is very close. And so it can go either way and that won't be a polling error. But we are now in Pennsylvania. We're over five point. The polling average has Biden by five. That's a polling error. We were looking back, by the way, in, in 2016 and it's funny because one remembers the shock of uh, Trump's margin in Ohio. But the day before the election, Trump was in the polling averages up by three and a half in Ohio. He won by eight. But it's not like he wasn't he he wasn't winning in Ohio, which which Obama had had won twice. So like Florida could go either way. North Carolina could go either way. But Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan, which are the states that won him the election, are outside the margin would would require a kind of systemic nightmarish polling error that will invalidate all of social science as far as i can tell am i am i i mean i'm trying to think of how how you recover from from something like that especially because um after 2016 it won't be entirely anomalous right there will have been this the ground was already softened um, right. by our having lost some faith in, in, in polling. After what's, in, what's, what's interesting is we went back and listened to the last podcast that we did uh, before the 2016 election, which was pretty good, by the way. And we maybe if we can get some help from some of our friends who do <clears throat> this more technically better than we do, we can cut some pieces and play it for you maybe like the day before this election. 
have to ask Scott Emmerga to help us with that, maybe. What, what makes you think I'm ill-equipped to do this? I don't You have other things to do. You have other things to do. Anyway, but um, I, I, I bring this up because Noah reminded me that after the 2012 polling errors, which uh, undercounted Obama, uh, and they undercounted Obama because there was a lot of modeling going on, the, uh, the, there was a lot of weighting and modeling going on, that in 2016 the way to correct for the last mistake was to do no weighting and modeling or to do very little. Like you weren't supposed to try to say, I don't know, I don't see these Trump, I don't see the white working class anywhere. And then it was like, no, 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 don't wait and model. Don't try to wait for the white working class because when we did that last time, we missed the Obama, we we put too much stress on that and then we didn't see Obama's four-point victory. And so now they're modeling like crazy and, you know, the chances are, if they're correcting for the last mistake, it's conceivably more likely that they are overcounting the Trump vote in well, their so, models and waiting. Well, not would, not that they're undercounting it. Well, which would save them. But honestly, if they, if I think Abe's right, if they get this one wrong, they're they're going to prove to have been the phrenologists of the 21st century, right? Yeah. I mean, we do have science, right. so-called sciences that disappear when their so-called scientific claims are proven over and over again to be ridiculous. So that could be the fate of our pollsters if they're not. But I actually tend to think they're going to have self-corrected enough that yeah. they're right. But Anyway, it's just an interesting, <laughs> it was an interesting thing that I had totally forgotten. That their religion was. It's anathematic to model. It's 2016. We made so many mistakes modeling in 2012 that we're just going to go with the likely registered voter screens and likely voter screens and go with that now. And now that we're supposedly going to have this turnout election that's going to have larger turnout than you ever had before, when in theory you don't have to model under those conditions. Because if you have a hundred, if you have like 70% turnout or something like that, registered voters are going to vote the way registered voters vote like there you don't need to start trying to figure out who the voting populace is you mostly have them if you're just talking to people um then i don't know anyway uh it's just it was an interesting observation and with that i will say that we will talk to you again uh, tomorrow and try to come up with something interesting to talk about for noah christine and abe i'm john pod keep the candle burning